Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 21. We're going we're gonna to mostly go through Psalm 132, but let's start Matthew 21. Right. When you're there, you can turn to verse 9. Matthew 21, verse 9. I'm reading out of New King James. I'll put it up for you guys. All right. You guys there? All right. You guys there? All right. We'll get better at that. You guys there? All right. There we go. (laughs) You awake? All right. So this is a familiar passage probably for most of us, especially um, if you've grown up in the church. We have Jesus coming in, this triumphal, and triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I just want to read a few portions of it and then uh, highlight a couple verses. So verse 9 says, Then the multitudes who went out before, who went before, And those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pause there. So here we are. He's coming in. He's not just coming in quietly. He's coming in with a crowd. The crowd is is shouting and throwing down their jackets. And it's, It's a huge huge triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, he's riding in on, on a colt, not that colt, a different colt. Though he rides in on this colt's worship too. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but he's just coming in, riding on a donkey, and, and the, the whole crowd, children, adults, everyone, they're coming in and they're, they're crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna meaning, come, heal, save, deliver now. You know, there's this... this Reality that they feel like their king is coming in now to save, he'll deliver, and we can go into it. Uh, verse 10, we see that the whole city knew he was coming. They knew someone was coming in. It was a massive scene. It wasn't just the church or the people that were following Jesus. They got the city's attention. And the whole city was asking, who is this? Who is this? Uh, and they think they know the multitudes, some that may have known his family like, or know his story. So this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And how many of you know he's much more than a prophet? Amen. And so let's continue on. The multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet uh, from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God. And he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, did you hear what these are saying, what the children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. So a lot of significant things happening in, in this verse. We're, we are going to hone in for the rest of, of today on the my house shall be called the house of prayer. And then we're going to go into Psalm 132. 
uh, which is the vow of David. But part, some things I don't want to just blow by as we're reading through this passage. One, um, you know, when he came in, the question was, who is this? And part of our assignment as believers is to declare who he is to those who don't even know who they're looking for or who's come into their midst. Um, and the other thing I want to point out in this is on the outside of the temple, right? When they were coming in, the multitudes were, were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The multitudes were, were casting their, their cloaks down for him to ride in on. But when they go into the temple with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the only ones still shouting were the children. We just read it. He said that they were mad, right? Because they saw the wonderful things that he did, not just mad about his healing, but that the children were crying out saying, Hosanna. You know, they're just crying out what, what they heard on the streets to cry out. Now, now think just a couple chapters before Matthew 19, right? The children are coming to Jesus and the disciples are rebuking them. And Jesus says, no, don't, don't rebuke them. Let the children come to me. For to come into the kingdom, you have to come in like a child. And here we have this crowd yelling Hosanna, getting the whole city's attention. But they come into the religious system. And when they're inside, the only one left shouting was the children. And this is something for us to pay attention to. When we, when we come into religious systems, sometimes fear gets a hold of us and then we become silent. But children, they're not afraid. Children are not afraid. They'll come up to you. They don't care if you are a CEO or a president. It makes no difference to them. You might have what they want or you might be in the way or they might want to tell you what you look like or what you sound like and they are not afraid. You know, have you ever encountered a child, right? Uh, they're wonderful on so many different levels. But, but the kids were not afraid. They didn't have fear. But as adults, you know, we have learned fear. But what courage does, courage gives us the ability that even when we're afraid to keep shouting Hosanna and to invite him to come in, there is a, a silencing of the spirit of fear where ha that has come and silenced the church. And we need to come in like a spirit of a child to bring in the kingdom of God and say, even on the outside and on the inside, even in the place where I feel intimidated, I'm still going to cry out, Hosanna. I'm still going to declare, God, come. All right. It's better than some of your responses. It's okay. Last part in this passage, then we'll turn to Psalm 132. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And this is, this is interesting. He's coming into the temple. He's coming into what would be the house of God, right? And he's coming in and he's, he's giving us a definition. My house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. What is he establishing? One, he's, he's talking about his place, his dwelling, his house, that it will be a house of prayer. It will look like, it, it will look different than what they made it look like. They had prioritized different things. And he's saying, here's a priority for you. It's prayer. And what's prayer? Prayer simply for us is this dialogue with God. Open dialogue. It's a place where men and women can come in and talk to me and I will talk to them. It's engagement with God in prayer, in worship, in conversation, in the scripture. It's reading this and then talking to him about this. That's prayer. Sometimes we sing our prayers. 
Sometimes we do prophetic acts and we're, we're acting out our prayer. Sometimes we're asking him, but prayer is not just about asking him. Sometimes prayer is coming before him and telling him who he is. Not because he needs to be reminded, but because we need to be reminded. So prayer is this constant dialogue, this, this, this reality of conversing and engaging with the Lord. My house will be a house where the people engage with me. They're not just engaging with each other, selling and buying, but they're engaging with me. But probably the most important part of that phrase, my house shall be called a house of prayer, is the my house part. Because the thing that makes it his house is that he's there. If he's not there, then it can't be my house. We can't call it his house if he's not there. And so we are invited to create a place that if we want it to be my house shall be called a house of prayer, then it's a place where we're engaging with God, but it's a place where we are centered. The prayer, the engagement with God is centered around the place of his presence. And I know we're in the 21st century and, and, and reality, you know, even just this church history, just Life Center, we started off as a house of prayer. We're also a church. We're, we continue to do prayer as a house. We, we are a praying church. And the point that I'm making, we're not speaking, because some of you guys might be familiar with the House of Prayer movement. We're not speaking with titles of ministries or uh, styles of ministries or whether or not we're going to be a 24-7 house of prayer or we're going to be a local church. That, but the, the point I'm not making is, is the structure. I'm talking about the heart. So whether, whether we are a house of prayer or whether we're a church or whether we're a ministry or anything in between, not just our body, but the body globally to be his house, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. So it's not just for the prayer movement. It's not just for the praying church. It's for every believer who gathers in a corporate reality. He is addressing it here, adjust. Now I have kids. I have three children, right? And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a son. I got parents in the back over there. You can meet them. <laughs> And I, I say this to, to my kids. Um, it's like a, a different phrase than what, you know, I'm sure some of our parents would have said to us, and we'll, we'll tell both. But I, I tell my kids, not so much Rosie. She's six months old, so she's not there yet. But I've told Olivia and I told Lorenzo, I'm like, hey, I don't work for you. I'm like, I don't know if you're aware of this. I don't work for you. You know, because they're always like, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm thirsty. I want to play a game. Can, I, can you change my, I want to wear this. I want to do that. I want a tattoo. I want, like, stick on tattoo. We're not the other place yet. No, they're just, and it's always like, you know, dinner time, right? You're, you're trying to get the dinner on the table and they're asking for something, right? Like, can you help me? I want, Lorenzo's new thing is batteries, batteries, because he's getting toys that need batteries. He wants the batteries. Can I have the batteries and batteries? And I'm like, we just had a conversation 30 minutes ago how we don't have any more AA batteries. It's like, they're just asking. And so I'm like, hey, Lorenzo, I don't work for you. And he knows it well enough now that he even tells Jenny when I'm not home, daddy works for me. You know, daddy works for me. So like he, he gets the, the wrestle. But like most of us, are, our parents might have said a similar phrase like, hey, this, you know, you know, we'd be like, dad, this is our house. Like, no, this is not our house. This is my house. <laughs> Do you work? Do you pay the bills? Do you put the food? No. Okay. So this isn't our house. This is my house. You live here because I allow you to live here and I love you. But one day you won't live here and this is my house. And I feel like sometimes we've come into the church, we've come into his house in a way as sons and daughters, and there's, there's a, a benefit and there's a healthiness to it where we come in and we ask him of things. Um, but I do think there's sometimes we come into his house and we're like, God, I would like to do things a little different. 
We'd like to change the order a little bit. Let's just uh, structure the service a little bit so it's a little bit more friendly to those that are coming in. And let's maybe do a little bit more of this program, a little bit less. If we do it this way, maybe a little bit less time, maybe a little bit shorter worship, maybe a little bit longer worship. I think more people will come. And we start to strategize and do the things that we feel like, and it's not always bad intention, but I feel like there is this invitation and this reminder of the Lord where he's saying, hey guys, this is not your house. This is my house. And I feel like there is an invitation to old ways. You know, the, you know, and we love it. The out with the old, in with the new. But a lot of times with the kingdom, it's, it's out with the old, but in with the older. He's calling us back to ancient paths. He's calling us back to origins. And one of those origins and def- defining the church for New Testament reality is when he comes and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So that's something we have to pay attention to. It's not just the rebuke of creating it into a den of thieves because that was their mistake. But what is our creating? What is our den of thieves that he wants to adjust so that it can become again his house? And we need to approach this corporately and we do this as a leadership team. This is our heart. We, we want this to be house. We, his house. We have a value for his presence. We're not perfect, but we're we're leaning in and striving to follow him. And even individually, we need to check in on our hearts and saying, God, what am I building? What am I building? What am I building in this house? What am I building in this house? Because again, it's not just the pastoral staff that's building something here. We as a collective body are building something. There are hammers and, and drills in each of your hands. I don't know if you know that. The moment you walked into these doors, there is and empowering for you to to be equipped for the work of ministry. Meaning when you come into this place, we're equipping you to do the work. And so then there needs to be a surveying of our hearts, both individually, but the point I'm making is, how are you connecting corporately? Even in this house, if this is your local church, how are you connecting in corporately to help build his house as a house of prayer, but that it is his house? I do think practically there is an aspect of it that plays out into a daily reality of prayer. Whether it be one day we have daily prayer here or we're just as a church, we're praying daily. I do think there, we can talk practically about that. I do think there is a context in which we're saying a night and day reality. I do think some houses are called to do more of a house of prayer model in the sense like, We're going to pray and worship together and we're going to do it for hours. And I do think that there is an invitation for prayer to come back into the local church model. But I say that to say this. I think that God is reminding us right now that the prayer ministry, the house of prayer part, is going from a backroom ministry to a front of the house ministry. And I think there is an invitation for us as a body to buy in again to prayer and building around the place of his presence. That means it's going to interrupt our schedules a little bit and it's going to inconvenience us. Because if it's in the back room, we only need a couple people. But if we're making it a front of the house thing, we need everyone. Everyone engaged and learning what does it mean to engage with God in prayer and to build around the place of his presence. In Isaiah 66, right in verse 1, 
there's a phrase, and I'll turn there just so we can quote it correctly. And we're getting to Psalm 132, I promise. Isaiah 66. Isaiah's uh, writing here, and he's saying, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? Where is the house you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? I believe God is looking for a place even today. I think he's always been looking for a place and he finds places. And what I mean by that is, you know, because we can get into talking about a house of prayer, talking about uh, a place for God to rest and we can get into the, well, yeah, but I am, God, I am the temple of the living God. I go into my secret place. I, you know, this is his resting place. This is his dwelling place. This is the house of God. And we start talking about individually our, our secret place time. And, and I do, there's so much value to that. And we can preach a whole sermon on that. We can do a sermon series on that. We can spend all year on that because it's very much needed. But I think what Isaiah 66 was talking about and what David, which we'll read in Psalm 132, was coming into and in building the tabernacle of David is, no, he desires a physical corporate place. Yes, he wants to come dwell in our hearts, but there also is an expression of the kingdom of God, of heaven, that is looking for a sacred place, an altar that is built where the people of God come, and then he comes in and dwells with them. And we're going to see how that played out in David's life as we go through it. As we go through. So turn with me to Psalm 132. Okay. So we don't know for sure who wrote this. Many theologians believe Solomon wrote this one. He was writing it about his dad. Um, I think. Uh, I honestly don't know the amount of years, but basically he's going from when his father was younger, kind of taking us through to when he was installed as king. And basically he's telling the storyline leading up to and then during when David went, got the Ark of the Covenant and restored it to Jerusalem. Now I've spoken on it. I know different, you know, Colton and Bill and we've actually think one or two weeks ago, Bill might've took us through 2 Samuel 6 a little bit. So you guys have been somewhat familiar, but if you want to go back and study it, uh, you can look through 2 Samuel 5, 6, 7. You can see the storyline more in depth, but I'm gonna just give you a quick synopsis of what is leading us into Psalm 132. So David was a shepherd in the field. He was skilled in, in the harp and he was playing. Saul was the king at the time. Uh, and Saul essentially was installed. He was the king that people wanted, not ex ex essentially the king that, Maybe the Lord would have put in, but it's what they wanted. They wanted a warrior king. God gave them Saul. Saul ended up really declining in his, his walk with the Lord. And he comes to a point where he's being tormented at night. And so somehow someone in Saul's court knows of this boy named David. And they said, go get David. He's skilled in the harp. He's anointed. And come have him play before Saul. So they do. They get him. Saul uh, gets delivered from those tormenting things and then begins David and Saul's relationship, and he would become best friends with Jonathan and marry Saul's daughter, and we know the story, he becomes king. But in that day, in this David coming in on the scene, and then David being anointed king, and then years later before he's installed king, we have the reign of Saul, 
where Saul had just completely lost regard for the presence of God. And in that day, the presence was dwelling on the Ark of the Covenant. It was a physical structure that Moses built. Uh, and then Israel would, would have it in times of war. They would use it, go before it. They would, you know, make sacrifices before it. But this is, you know, chest, gold cherubim, mercy seat on top of it. Uh, if you've ever seen a picture of it, then you kind of know what I'm talking about. If not, you can Google it, Ark of the Covenant. You might get Raiders of the Lost Ark first, and then you'll get there. <laughs> But you'll eventually get there and you'll see the image, this golden image. The, the, in the chest was the, the tablets of stone where Moses had, well, God had written on the tablets of stone. Uh, the Ten Commandments was the, the jar of manna and the almond rod of Aaron that would actually bud before the presence of God. And so it's the testimony. It's why it's called the, the Ark of the Testimony as well, because it's telling the story of what happened with Israel in the wilderness period with the Ten Commandments, with the, the, the daily bread that they would get, the manna that they would get, and with the, the rod, the leading of the Lord, right? And so it's called the Ark of the Covenant, called the Ark of the Testimony. The presence of God was physically manifest on it. We know the story of when David brings it into Jerusalem, uh, and then Uzzah goes to study the ark and he ends up dying because there was a specific way that, in which God had ordained and established that his presence in this ark would be transported. But I say all that to say this. In Saul's day, he knew about it, but he lost regard for it. He knew about it. I know he knew about it because David knew about it. Israel knew about it, but he had forgotten in his heart. We don't quite know exactly how it got there, but the ark is lost. We're going to see where, where David finds it, but, but let's read together before we move on. Psalm 132. So I just set the scene. Saul lost regard. David's going to come in, but the first thing he, he's going to do, he's going to restore the presence of God to Jerusalem by looking for the ark. Verse one, Lord, remember David and all of his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my, my bed. I will not give, up, give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods or in the field of Jar. And let's pause there. So again, so, many believe this was Solomon writing this. Solomon, verse one, would have been very familiar with the afflictions of David. He would have been very familiar with his father's upbringing. He would have been very familiar with the stories of how it was a struggle, how Saul was trying to kill him, how he was anointed as king over a decade before he actually becomes, I mean, it was not an easy journey. So he would have, he would have known. He would have known the vow that his father had made to not rest or give slumber to his eyes until the Lord finds a dwelling place, till he finds a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And we see the connection there because the next verse, let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. You know, this is, we've just transitioned. So he's looking for it. He's heard of it in, in um, Ephrathah, which would be the area which Bethlehem was in, which is where his father was from, Jesse. We found it in the fields of Jar. So he's saying, okay, now we found the ark. And then he would build a tabernacle. So when we get to verse seven, he's basically, we've transitioned to looking for the ark to now we find it. And now he's speaking to the people. He's saying, let's go into his tabernacle. Let's worship at his footstool. And then he's speaking to the Lord. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed uh, with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. 
When he was looking for it, the reason why no one knew where it was, Saul lost regard. Saul had no idea where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Philistines had gotten a hold of it. They were passing it from camp to camp. If you read the stories, they were putting it in their temples. Uh, but wherever the Ark was in the Philistine territories, the men of that city would break out in what theologians would say would be modern-day hemorrhoids. Not pleasant, I know. So they're getting this uncomfortable skin reality. Uh, then they're like, well, we don't want it here. You guys take it. Then the next town would get it. And then the same thing would happen. And then they would pass. Eventually they were like, no, don't bring it here. Get rid of it. Just get rid of it. And so they find it in the fields of Jar. So these guys put it in, in this, this forest called Jar, the fields of Jar. Uh, and if you look up where that was and what it, what it was, it was this thick forest. You know, sometimes you go into a woods and it's like, you know, you kind of see, this was a thick wood, meaning the trees were close together. And it was a forest that was on a, a mountain, on a hill. So meaning David, when he went to look for it, it was not an easy task. When he set his heart to reestablish the presence of the Lord at the center of a city, and he had to go and look for something that was not easy to find. It took effort. It took finance. He put everything on pause. He didn't, first thing that he did in his kingdom wasn't go and make new laws or uh, establish something else or a new way of doing things or, or whatever, have a banquet for himself. The first thing he does is make a proclamation to his court, go and find the ark. And when they go to look for it, it's in a hidden place. It's in a wooden place. Remember, he, Saul had lost regard for the presence of God. And so it ends up in this field on the top of this mountain. And this field of Jar, this forest, it was a forest where the trees uh, had hun honeycomb. And not just honeycomb, but if you read through the history, it was so uh, abundant with honey that the field itself was dripping in the liquid of the honey that dripped out of the honeycomb. It wouldn't be so fitting that in an hour where men had lost regard for the presence of God, that God would put his presence in a place that was high, was hidden, in a place flowing in the honey of his presence, in the sweetness of his presence. Waiting for a boy who played the harp, who knew his desire for the Lord to search for it, and the very first thing that he does in a place when he's faced with influences, I'm going to search out until I find the presence and I'm going to get it back. Not only was it not easy to find, it was not easy to get it to Jerusalem. He encountered difficulties every time. When you think of the story, when Uzzah dies after he, he touched it and they have to go to Obed-Edom's house for like three months the ark has to go to Obed-Edom's house, not Jerusalem, a different place, Obed-Edom's house for three months. Do you know how embarrassing that would have been for a king to go and do something? It's not even a battle. We're just moving this cart on a structure. It's like, are you serious? You're a king. You can't get this cart. You paused the whole nation to get this structure back into Jerusalem. And now we have to stop, wait three months and do it again. He searched for it in a place that was hard to find. And then when he found it and he tried to bring it, it took three months to figure out how to get it there. Do you see the value that David put 
on the presence of God. It wasn't a simple turning of his heart. It was a months long pursuit. We don't know how long it took him to find it in the first place. So he's taking amounts of time to go and fight it. We heard of it, meaning they're, they're asking. We're asking. It's like, oh, there's whispers of it. It's near Bethlehem. They go towards Bethlehem. They're asking. Um, this is the rich version because we don't actually have the account. They're going towards Bethlehem. <laughs> they're like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Well, check up. We've heard of it in the, in the fields. It's a thick fart. And they have to go up. You know, imagine it's dripping. You know, their feet are getting in. It is a messy scene. They find it. They try to bring it back. Someone dies. Goes to the scriptures, wait three months. He's being a little bit tormented by his people because he's saying, David, David, Obed-Edom's house is being blessed while we're waiting to figure it out. I mean, this was not easy, but he set and he purposed in his heart. It doesn't matter if it's difficult. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter what other people are saying. It doesn't matter if I don't know the answer. I'm gonna seek out the answer and the how-to because it, I will not rest until I build the Lord a resting place. I will not put sleep or slumber. He made a vow and he was gonna see that vow through until the presence of the Lord was established and restored in his life, in his people, in his city, and in his nation. This was a serious thing. It was a holy thing. It's something that he adjusted his life around, his kingdom, his work, his, his everything. So when he says, let us go into his tabernacle, let us worship at his footstool, it's the connection to Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the place, my ho the house you were built for me? Where is the place where I will rest? David would have known Isaiah 66. David would have picked up that request from the Lord and said, I vow to build you that. jump to verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. Her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. So we look back. He puts it up on Zion. And it's more than just a place that he picked. Zion, Zion means a sacred space. Zion is in a high place. It's elevated. It's a mountain. And Zion, the word, it means a place that is shining. And so what David was doing and where the Lord led David to, to build the presence of God, he, he built it in a high place. David would know where the tabernacle was originally from. It was from Moses. Moses built it. And where, where did Moses go to encounter God? Up on Mount Sinai in a high place. Where did God hide the ark? When Saul lost regard, hid it in the field of Jar into a high place. And where does David pitch the tent? on Mount Zion in a high place. It just reminds me of the verses, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, him with clean hands and a pure heart. It reminds me of the beckoning of John that says, look up, there's a door standing open in the heavens and a voice crying out saying, come up here. 
It reminds me of Jacob's ladder, angels ascending and descending. It reminds me of this reality that when the presence of the Lord is established, we get invited into a high place. And it's from that place where we can get direction, where we can get instruction. Moses went up Mount Sinai, would encounter the Lord, and then would come with instruction to lead the people. David would write most of these Psalms from that tent, which he pitched. There's an invitation for us to build him a resting place, to pick up this vow that David made and to come into a high place. What's a high place too? It's it's signifying the heavenly places, the on earth as it is in heaven. It's this reality that when we come up higher with him, we get higher perspective. We get heaven's perspective. All of these things only come from the place of his presence. David makes the vow, and then the Lord answers the vow in verse 14. He says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I mean, it's beautiful. Because that phrase there, I desired it. When, I look, when you look into the, the original Hebrew, it can be translated many different ways. One being, I desired it. But it, you could also read, it can also read, I longed for it. I coveted it. I desired it, a space to come and dwell. But there's also another translation where he says, I inclined or I bent or I turned aside. Meaning that he was saying, here I will dwell for I have turned aside to this place. And it makes me think of Moses, right? Moses is on on his journey, he's walking in the desert and we know the story of the burning bush, right? Moses is walking, there's a bush that's on fire. We've said it here a couple times, you know, it's not uncommon for a bush to be on fire in the desert, but there was something different in the flames that caused Moses to turn aside and to encounter the Lord and encounter his presence and remove his sandal because the place where he was standing was holy ground. But David, David understood that if we could build for him a dwelling place, a resting place, if we could answer his desire from Isaiah 66, we can vow to build him a place. He'll not just visit us on the road, but when we come into his house, he will turn aside to us in there. And it becomes this practicality that as the people of God, you want a guarantee to encounter him, to meet with him, you go to the place where he dwells. And as I was saying before, I had started in on it, and I don't know if I finished it, but I was saying, how we can come in and say we're building him a personal place, a secret place for ourselves. And yeah, I'm building him a temple. I am a temple. I am a house of prayer, physically secret place. And that's good and that's great. And that is true. But he has longed. And what Psalm 132 is revealing, he desired. He hungered for a place where he could come, a corporate place to dwell with people. David set this place up for 30 to 36 years. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. People could come in, Ark of the Covenant's in there. There's the inner courts, there's the outer courts, but it's not just reserved for the high priest anymore. He completely pauses 
the old covenant in that, in that way, the sacrificial system of the old covenant in that way, where only the high priest can go in. And he establishes it so that anyone can come in at any time and not just the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats, but they could bring a sacrifice of praise before the presence of God. And he gives a Old Testament for pict- or, or a picture of a New Testament reality in the Old Covenant that one day Jesus would come, shed his blood, tear the veil, and then would give us access at any time we can come before his presence. But they began to practice that type of Christianity before the Ark of the Covenant, before his manifest presence. Because you couldn't go in unless you were a high priest, and you couldn't go in unless you were veiled. David built a place for God to dwell. And God came and he dwelled there, and he allowed people to come and dwell with him. Why are we talking about this today? In Amos 9, 11 to 12, there's a prophecy that God says in the last days I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Some translation says I will rebuild the fallen booth of David. And then verse 12, it talks about for the salvation of Edom. What's Edom? It's the land of of Esau, Jacob and Esau, Jew and Gentile. Saying in the last days, I'm gonna rebuild this fallen booth. This is what we're talking about. This vow that David vowed to build the tabernacle, which was then called the tabernacle of David, which is significant because Jesus now rules from the throne of David. Says that David was a man after my own heart. David tapped into the heart of the Lord so much so that for all eternity, the one who he serves chooses to sit on a throne that he named after him. Amos says, in the last days, I'm gonna rebuild this. In the New Testament, we see in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, they have this whole thing going on where they're like, Gentiles are getting saved. We know what to do with the Jews. We don't know what to do with the Gentiles. What do we do, right? It's a good problem to have. The people who you didn't think were gonna get saved are all getting saved. Now what do we do with them, okay? So if you know the story, Peter uh, shares his dream vision that he had with the, the, the sheet coming down. He had it three times. Animals are on the sheet. God says, Peter, arise and kill. He says, I'm not gonna kill and eat what's unclean. And God says, don't call, clean what, uh, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And then a few others start to share testimonies of what was happening in meetings with the Gentiles. Basically, the whole point was, What's happening with the Jews? Yes, it is happening with the Gentiles. You guys are seeing it correctly. They're, they're sharing. They're having a whole discussion. And then James stands up and James goes, I know what's going on. And he begins to quote Amos 9:11, And he says, the Lord is rebuilding the tabernacle of David, the fallen booth of David in our day for the remnant of, of Edom for the Gentile people. He's basically saying this thing that we built, this early church that's being built around the presence of the Lord is connected to, to the reality of the tabernacle of David. What's the tabernacle of David? It's the place that was built by David to house the manifest presence of God. And David knew the way in which God liked to be approached. And that's with worship and prayer, dialogue with God around the presence, nonstop, 24 hours, 365 for 30 plus years. And James says that reality we are entering into right now and that reality is causing a salvation of an entire people group back in Acts 15 and Amos says I'm going to do it in the last days 
That means for us, there is a call that in this day, he is reestablishing the tabernacle and the fallen booth of David. And one of the expressions of that, because David's tabernacle and David's booth was more than just that. It was, had government, had a lot of things going on. But one of the expressions is worship and prayer around the place of the presence. It is the, my house shall be called a house of prayer. First Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, uh, into his marvelous light. He's raising up a priesthood in this hour who will pick up the vow that David made, who will understand the Isaiah 66 desire from the Lord for physical, sacred places where God desires to come and dwell with his people. What, you know what else that sounds like? It sounds like Genesis 1. And God walked in the cool of the day with Adam. And all of this is going back to that reality of God dwelling with man and man dwelling with God. That's what we're going to do for eternity. But he's looking for an expression today. Just like David inserts himself into eternity when something else is going on, he catches a glimpse of what was going on in the heavenly places. He manifests it into his today and causes a complete disruption of the sacrificial system and does something completely different that was completely illegal in his time. And God is saying to us today, don't just go with the status quo. I want you to recognize that the church is only the church if I'm there. And I am there when my presence is there. And I'm... My presence is there when I find a people who put a value again to my presence and center everything they do around my presence. And part of what that looks like is approaching God in the way he desires to be approached. And that looks like worship and prayer. It looks like singing. It looks like what we did for 40 minutes. And sometimes we come in and we forsake that time because we don't have a revelation of the vow and the understanding that David had that this is everything before anything else becomes anything. He built his government on it. He built his family system on it. He built the financial structure around it. What do I mean by that? He financed 4,288 people to be freed up from their jobs to just minister to the Lord day and night. You don't have to till the field. You don't have to do anything out there. You don't have to build anything. You don't have to work with your hands. Go and minister to the Lord. Do you see the value? And how God connects David to us by saying, that's the man who has my heart. In the last days, I will rebuild the fallen booth of David. And hear me, I'm not just talking about a practical expression. Yes, there might be houses that go 24-7. Maybe we'll go 24-7 one day. Maybe we'll just be open seven days a week. I don't know how that will play out, but we're not talking about the practicality. We're talking about the heart because whether it's a house of prayer, whether it's a praying church, whether it's a ministry, either way, whatever the practicality of your ministry looks like, the heart and the call remains the same. Whatever it is, it better be my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's the... Let's not get tripped up by my version of the den of thieves. 
I don't, they that build the house without the Lord, they labor in vain. I don't want to build a house that will just give me vanity, vanity in the end. Isaiah 40, this is a whole different message and we're not going to go into it, but we find Isaiah in the wilderness season and he's basically saying, you know, the grass and the fields, the beautiful things of this life, they're all going to wither away in the end. They're all going to fade away in the end. It's, it's him, it's his presence that's eternal. Meaning this, God is calling us into a season to build his house. All across this city, his house and this region, his house is being built again. The past two or three, four months, there has been an outpouring of the presence of God. There has been. The, the worship and the services have not been the same as they were six or seven months ago. Not that those were bad six or seven months ago because they gave birth to what we've been experiencing the past two or three months. But I feel like there is an invitation now for us to make a vow that's saying, God, we thank you for what you've been doing. We've been feeling your presence, but Lord, I'm not just gonna let this pass me by. I'm gonna grab a hold of this. I'm gonna align my life with building you a place to dwell. Does that mean we're all gonna quit our jobs and come into the, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. Because this reality works for the person that does 70 to 80 hours a week. It works for the stay at home mom. It works for the minister. It works for every position because it's the intentionality of the heart. It does look like adjusting our schedules a little bit because there has to naturally be an adjustment to gather in a corporate place. It does look like a little bit of inconvenience, what we thought was inconvenience, because there was a value on something that might have been greater than the value for him. And we do, we feel inconvenienced at times, like, oh, I got this lunch planned, and are we really going to linger a little bit longer in worship today? Because I really needed to get out today at 1.30, or I need it, and I don't, I'm not, you know, we do honor and respect your time, and, you know, we're orderly. We're orderly. But sometimes God's order looks like disorder because God's order does not look like our order. And I think of the verses, you know, without, without the oxen, the manger is clean, but there's much strength in the, in the power of the ox. It's in Proverbs. So what does that mean? It's like, if we're, if we are pursuing the power and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then we may not have a, a clean and tidy manger. And sometimes we're looking for the clean and tidy. And I think that's where we've come into. Sometimes we, we, and our hearts are great. Like, it's not that we intended to do it, but sometimes we build structures or services or plans and we, we find ourselves in the clean and tidy because it feels good. And the Lord's, he wants to just come and turn our tables over. And that's his mercy. It's his mercy to turn over the things that he knows won't last. And so sometimes I feel like we take it as this harsh rebuke, but it's his mercy because he didn't leave us in that place. He loved us enough to come and say, no, adjust, switch up, do it a little different, go a little bit longer, go a little bit later, go late to lunch. I think it's just simply turning the expectation or the intentionality of a heart that when we come into his house, we're coming into his house. And the beautiful thing is when we come into his house, 
he then becomes the host. You know, we're building him a place to dwell and we think like, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this. But then when he comes in, he's in charge. We're not in charge. He's in charge. All right. I have like four more pages of notes, but we're going to skip to the last, the last page, which is fine. All right. There's a call for us today to build a place for God. This has been a cry that's been reverberating all throughout the New Testament, not just in the places where we read. And what I mean by that is just this heart posture. I feel like we are, we are like those who are on the road to Emmaus. Like right now, I mean, in the last three, four months, we, we are like those that have been on the road to Emmaus. And what do I mean by that? They were walking with, with each other. We'll turn there. It's Luke 24. This will be our, our last scripture that we turn to. Have the worship team come up. Jesus has already died on the cross. He resurrected. The women have already gone to his, his gravesite. Stone's been rolled away. They saw he's not there. They went and announced it to the disciples. Uh, these guys know this. And they go on a seven-mile journey to where they're going. And while they're on the way, Jesus shows up. They don't know it's Jesus. Uh, and Jesus asked them a question. He says, <clears throat> where are we? We'll just read it really quick. Now behold, the two were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. They talked together of all the things that had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Their eyes, did not, their eyes were restrained so they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And basically they kind of like say, are you kidding me? Like, do you not know? Of course we're sad. <laughs> Jesus died. He's an amazing prophet. We were hoping he was going to be the one that was sent to deliver us. And you could see the, the lace of doubt. And This is after knowing that he's no longer in the, I mean, like, so Jesus is kind of like, are you kidding me that you don't, you don't know? And then he goes to explain everything. They still don't know it's him. He goes to talk about what was going on in the day. He, he begins to open up the scriptures to them. But the point I want to make is, in verse 28, they draw near to the village, to Emmaus, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he did, he went in with them to stay with them. And it came to pass that as he sat at the table with them and he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? A couple of things have, have, have gripped me in this passage. One, as he's walking with them, their hearts become alive. 
their hearts start to burn. Their eyes are opening up. Their ears are opening up. We just read it. When he broke the bread, their eyes opened, their ears opened. Their hearts were alive. I feel like we've been in a season the past few months, our hearts have come alive again. I know we've experienced it. As a leadership team, so many in this room have experienced a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our services, in our prayer meetings. And our hearts have come alive. And we are so grateful. We're so thankful for what the Lord has done and what He's doing. I want to point out this phrase. Because they said, as we were walking, our hearts burned. And with burning hearts, they saw that He indicated that He would have gone farther, meaning He would have left them Emmaus and He was going to keep going. But they restrained Him. Think of the woman with the issue of blood who pressed through the crowd just to grab the hem of his garment. Think of blind Bartimaeus who hears and knows that Jesus is coming and he cries out. He says, son of David, don't pass me by. I think of little Zacchaeus who climbs up on the top of a tree and cries out just to get a glimpse of him. These guys, their hearts were burning. They had come alive. And they said, far be it from us to just have this experience, journal it, and then read about it every year after that. They were in a time where their hearts had come alive and they said, we're going to restrain him. And he comes in and he dines with them. I think of Revelation 3 leading into four. He says, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If you open, I will come in and dine with you. In an hour where our hearts have come alive, there's an invitation still to restrain him, to pull on him, to open the door of our heart once more and say, God, thank you, but there's more. I don't want just this visitation. I want a habitation. I want what David talked about. He didn't want just the Moses. On the way, he turned aside to the bush. That was great for Moses. But David said, I want you to come to a place where you can dwell. David's heart was burning. David's heart was yearning. David longed to live daily with him and I believe we're in a moment where I like to call it you know we're at that lowercase r revival we're experiencing God we have personal revival going on we're adjusting our lives we're repenting we're we're discipling and being discipled we're growing in the word we're reading we're studying we're showing up we're worshiping and our hearts have come alive But there's a hunger and a thirst that God is going to awaken in a generation that understands that even in the moment where your heart is alive, now there is the call, build him a house. Build him an altar. 
go and find him restrain him open the door of your heart let him come in and dwell he's looking for a people who are not satisfied until he comes and he remains can you stand with me I know I've said it a couple times, but I just really want to remind us again. Because I think it's so important that we recognize where we stand globally. We don't just want a, a, a New York biblical worldview. We want a global worldview. And all across the earth, God is starting to pour out. I'm telling you, some of you just look up some of the places, some of your favorite places you normally look. There, there has been, and you hear the pastors and the leaders talking about it and the people talking about it. Something's different right now. There's something different in the air. There's something different about the services. There's something different about the worship times. There's something different. They're preaching the same things, but there's something different. They're doing the same practices, but something is different. What's different? God has drawn near. He is near. He is not afar off right now. He is in this room. He has been in this room. He has been in our services. He has interrupted our meetings. The one who you're looking for, He has suddenly appeared. We don't know why it happened, but He has been here the past few months. But as a people and as a church, we are positioning ourselves saying, God, we want this, but we want it as a place of your dwelling. We want you to answer us like you answered David. Yes, I will dwell here forever for I have desired it and I will turn aside to you when you come. Yeah, just close your eyes. Just put your hands up before the Lord. I just see the Lord just moving all throughout the aisles and in the rows. He's all over this room. He's encountering so many of you right now. Just ask Him to increase. <laughs> God, if there be any tables in my life, that need to be turned over and turned on its head. Oh God, to do it now. But God, we do not want to be a people who become satisfied with business as usual. We don't want to just do church. We don't want to just do meetings for the sake of meetings. We want to walk in the Isaiah 40 and those who wait on the Lord 
shall renew their strength. You shall lift them up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh God, deliver us from the weariness of the walk without you. We want to build you a house. Honestly, I've made it my practice that when I walk in the front door, before I come down the stairs, I pause and I say, God, this is your house. And I come down the stairs and I come into the sanctuary and I say, God, this is your sanctuary. And I come down the aisle and I come in the altar and I say, God, this is your altar. Why? Because I want to remind myself that He's here. That we're not just gathering around the name Life Center, but we're gathering around the name Jesus. We're gathering around His presence. We build you an altar. God, would you come and dwell? Come on, just begin to ask Him. Ask Him corporately. Lord, would you come and dwell in this place? you come and rest here let this be a house you can turn aside come in and dine with us we build for you an altar we build for you a dwelling place oh God come into your tabernacle come into your resting place come in come in come in come in Holy Spirit come in Come in, come in, come in. Don't get distracted, just look at him. Oh. We're going to go into worship. But if what I'm speaking on today, what I've been talking on, if, if you're feeling it in your heart, you know, you're saying, Rich, I, I want to enter into this vow. I want to adjust my life, adjust my schedule, whatever it may look like practically, we don't know. God will reveal it. But I want to build for Him a resting place, a dwelling place. I'm like those on the road to Emmaus. My heart is burning. But I want to restrain him. I'm not satisfied for him to keep going on. I want him to come in. We're like blind Bartimaeus. We're saying, Son of David, don't pass us by. And you want to respond to that as a prophetic act and come to the altar. I want you to quickly just come now. We're going to pray with you too. Just quickly come. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.